Hey, it's Jeff Benjamin here with the Investment News Podcast. We've got another week coming at you. Uh, I'm with my colleague and co-host Bruce Kelly. We've got a lot to talk about this week and some special guest. Bruce, uh, what's going on with you and uh, what's on our agenda for today? Uh, I'm great, Jeff. Thanks. Hey, and welcome back. I heard you had a week off last week. They let you take a week off? Yes, I broke the chains and uh, got out and played a little golf, did a little fishing, kayaking, you know, relaxed. But thank Very you. Nice. I also, I understand you were also off. You went and got yourself some new tennis shoes, I understand. Oh, yeah. My son's been <laughs> bugging me to get some, get out of those uh, hard shoes, you know, that guys like me wear. And so I got some fancy old man uh, <laughs> uh, walking running shoes from Adidas. And I'm wearing oh, them right oh. now. My feet are floating on air. So, Jeff, we have two special guests on the podcast this week. we got Mary Beth Franklin, whom I like to refer to as the Dear Abby of Social Security because she yes. gets all these great letters, you know, from financial advisors saying, how do I, what do I do for this client, you know, who's retiring and he's, he's widowed and, but he's remarried and all this kind of stuff. And then we have Liz Skinner, one of our top editors at the paper, talking about a diversity and inclusion study and program that we have here at Investment News. That's a little later on in the podcast. So first up, we have Mary Beth. Mary Beth, I hope you don't mind me calling you, referring to you as the Dear Abby of Social Security. Bruce, I've never heard that before, but I think it's terrific. Normally, I get referred to as the guru of Social Security or one of my favorites, the Google of Social Security. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't Excellent. think there's, you know, based on your age, you have to be like 50 or over to remember who Dear Abby was in the newspaper, but... You know, she used to get, people used to write in Lonely Hearts letters, I think they would call them, right? Saying lost in San Francisco or lonely in Seattle or something. And with all these relationships problems, and she would give them advice. You kind of do, you do a very similar thing, I think, in investment news. You get these letters from financial advisors saying, what kind of strategy do, or, or, or what do I point to when my client says, I have a problem with this social security claim, or I want to incorporate it into my financial plan. If you want to talk about that, that's great. But we also brought you on here today to talk about something we, we've been talking about off green and off microphone, which is the whole kind of uh, discussion of social security right now, what's going on in Washington with that. And also the notion of is the potential for raising the social security tax threshold, how serious is is that being discussed in Washington? And what do you think about that? So with that in mind, please uh, take it away, Mary Beth. Well, thank you, Bruce. And thanks, Jeff, for having me on your program. When I deal with financial advisors, they all generally agree that Social Security is a bedrock of retirement income for so many Americans, particularly those who don't have a traditional pension. For many of them, it's the only guaranteed form of retirement income that will last the rest of their lives. So we're all concerned that down the road, and we've known this for years, that Social Security has some long-term funding problems that Congress has to step in and fix. And generally, the fixes fall Is it up to the task, do you think, Mary Beth, with all the, you know, the gridlock and everything that, that, that people cr criticize Congress? I for? would back up and say, traditionally, you would never think that Congress would allow Social Security to run out of money because it is the most popular and one of the most successful federal programs in history, and more importantly, old people vote. But I will say over the last several years, 
politics as we know it has been disrupted. So my little crystal ball of what's going to happen now looks a bit more like a snow globe. I would say at the beginning of this year with the pandemic, I was so impressed that Congress jumped in on a bipartisan basis to pass these emergency relief stimulus packages that Americans needed. So that gave me hope. Hey, they're going to be able to fix Social Security down the road. And that seems to have worked, right? The stimulus definitely seems to have worked and done what it was intended to do, which was to keep the economy afloat while it went into this kind of state of shock. Absolutely. Between Congress with the stimulus package and the Fed with the easy credit, that is what has propped up the economy. But it looks like Americans need more help. And now Congress has gone back to the usual political squabbling. So yes, I think down the road, Congress will fix Social Security. But the sooner, the better. Once they get past the pandemic and the presidential election hump, they really need to seriously look about what to do to fix Social Security. Can we talk about what, what is happening imminently? I know you wrote something this week about a threshold issue that's, that's being kind of pushed to get more money into that coffer, correct? Correct. Now, traditionally, any fixes to Social Security either come on the tax side, gee, we have to raise more revenue, or on the benefit side, gee, we need to cut future benefits. The reality will probably be a little of each. And one of the ideas that have always been suggested is let's tax more wages, more payroll taxes that fund Social Security benefits. Now, right now, American workers and their employers each pay a share of their payroll taxes up to a taxable wage base, which right now is $137,700. The Congressional Research Service, which is a non partisan research arm of Congress has looked at what would happen if we either eliminated that cap altogether or brought it more into line with historical averages. Let me back up one second and say back in 1983, during the last major Social Security reform, the Bipartisan Commission said as long as 90% of U.S. wages are taxed for payroll tax purposes to fund Social Security, The Social Security system is fine in perpetuity. But the problem is, over those past nearly 40 years, so many people are making so much more than that taxable wage base, that $137,700, that Mm -hmm. that excess money is not being taxed to fund Social Security. So it means only about 83% of U.S. wages are being taxed. So what would happen if we let it gradually increase back to that 90% limit? It means higher income workers would be paying more. The big issue becomes, would those higher income workers also get bigger benefits in the future? Well, isn't that fair that they should get bigger benefits if they're paying more? Isn't that basically the original agreement of Social Security? Absolutely. And I support that completely. The original concept of Social Security back in 1935 was that workers would pay a percentage of their payroll, along with a matching contribution from their employers, that this would represent an earned benefit. It's not welfare. It's an earned benefit when we retire. And the idea of this taxable wage base is it shows a maximum amount of payroll that can be taxed 
And it also creates the maximum amount of a benefit formula once you take those benefits out. Now, some people have suggested, yeah, let's take the cap off the wages so we can tax more, but let's not increase those future (laughs) benefits. I do not think that's fair because that breaks that traditional bond of workers paying in and then getting a, a benefit in the future. But if you do increase the cap and increase the threshold, isn't it kind of a wash? Not quite. Yes, you would getting more payroll in and you would be paying bigger benefits. But the fact is the basic social security system is very progressive. Lower income workers get a larger percentage of their pre-retirement income paid in benefits. Higher income workers get a smaller percentage. So even Mm -hmm. if they raise the taxable wage base, and those higher income workers would get a bigger benefit in the future, there would be still more money going to the system that would be proportionally paid out more towards lower income workers. And many of them have no other source of income in retirement other than Social Security. Okay. What's the likelihood this is all going to happen? I know this is just a, a study. Any momentum behind it? Well, at the moment, there is no momentum on Social Security reform. There have been a couple bills introduced on the Hill, you know, just as a a placeholder, basically, but Mm -hmm. nothing's going to happen until Congress gets past the pandemic and gets past the presidential election. That doesn't mean come January, I expect Social Security reform legislation. To be honest, back in 1983, Social Security was running out of money in 1983 when they finally tackled the issue. The latest Social Security Trustees report says, well, we expect the trust fund, which is the excess revenue that's been building over the last 30-some years, will run dry around 2035. That doesn't mean your benefits would stop. There'd be enough money from ongoing payroll taxes to pay about 75% worth of promised benefits. But frankly, Nobody's going to be satisfied with 75% of promised benefits. Congress has to act to make sure they can pay the full promised benefits. But that last report did not take into account the effect of the pandemic. And frankly, those trust funds could probably run dry by the end of this decade. So Congress has to act sooner rather than later. So we have another topic we want to talk to you about on Social Security. But first, I want to ask you, we always hear about Social Security running out of money. Is that just politics or is it real? Well, again, what pays your Social Security benefits? Your FICA taxes, those payroll taxes are earmarked to pay Social Security benefits. Technically, Social Security is not allowed to take money from general tax revenues. It can only use payroll tax money. Over the last 30-some years, we knew the huge baby boomer generation was going to be retiring starting around 2010 and eventually would be pulling more money out of the system than FICA taxes alone could provide. And that's why we had these trust funds, which now we will be drawing down. Those trust funds, that excess revenue, will run dry sometime between the end of this decade and 2035. That's where we need the Social Security reform to bring more money into the system to pad the FICA taxes we now have to make sure everybody gets their promised benefits. The reality is most likely for future beneficiaries, they will see 
some sort of benefit cuts, maybe a higher full retirement age than currently is on the books. It's 66 right now. It gradually increases to 67 for people born in 1960 or later. I could foresee that eventually going higher, 69 or 70, but we're talking wow. for today's two-year-olds. You know, they've got decades <laughs> to get used to it and they're going to live Yeah, the heck with them. Let them start saving money, you know, <laughs> get a lemonade stand or something for crying Tell out your loud. grandson, oh. start saving right now. <laughs> But also look at it the other way. 1935, when they created it, the average life expectancy was mid to early 60s. Now Mm -hmm. it's, you know, mid to late 80s. And yet the full retirement age has only increased by one year over the past 85 years. It does need some benefit tweaks to keep up with our current reality. What about this? You said that the Technically, I think you said Social Security is not allowed to take money from the general tax fund. But isn't that what they did under the Obama administration when they cut the Social Security tax? And didn't you say that? Right. Back during the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, there was a temporary hiatus on collecting Social Security payroll taxes to give workers some relief. That was actually repaid by general tax revenues to make sure it wasn't dinging the Social Security Trust Fund. That was a special act of Congress. Now, more recently, President Trump, well, I should back up, as part of the pandemic stimulus package, there has been a deferral of the employer portion of the payroll taxes. And more recently, President Trump has suggested a deferral of the employee portion of the payroll tax for the last quarter of this year. The problem is Congress did not approve that. That has been an executive action. And so all the president can do is say, we suggest that employers don't collect the employee portion of the payroll tax, but I can't make it go away. And the reality is if employers don't collect that tax for the last quarter of 2020, those same employees are going to be on the hook to pay it back in the first quarter of 2021. That's going to be an unhappy new year. Right. And as a result, a lot of employers have not gone along with this. The federal government is forcing federal employees into this payroll tax holiday, but most private sector employers have not. Why would they force them into the payroll tax holiday? Well, because the president thinks this is a great idea and he could control what happens to the federal workforce, but not the private workforce. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that sounds like another wrinkle to worry about. I certainly wouldn't want to have to pay my social security taxes for the fourth (laughs) quarter all at once in January, but I guess things could be worse. Maybe I guess if this is going to happen to you, I don't think this is going to happen at my company, but, uh, or our company, I should say. If it does happen, I guess I'll just try and sock away that, what is it, 6.2% per paycheck? <laughs> right. It, it's 64 for the part that funds the Social Security. The other 1.45% funds Medicare, and that's sort of a different can of worms. One other point I want to point out to financial advisors. A lot of advisors are contacting me saying, due to the pandemic, gee, my client lost a job or my client is in poor health and is afraid to go back to work and near retirement, they're going to retire early. What should they do about Social Security? People should keep in mind that it is available to you as early as 62. But if you do claim before your full retirement age, it's permanently reduced. 
So you need to keep that in mind. Certainly, if you need the money, go ahead and take it. But be aware of the consequences in that your check is going to be smaller. If you're married, this could potentially result in a smaller survivor benefit if you predeceased your spouse. And there are some do-over strategies. If, for example, you need the money right now and you're 62 and a few years down the road, things improve, you may be able to reverse that decision so you could ultimately get a bigger Social Security benefit later. Are people generally advised to take Social Security as early as possible, Mary Beth? Well, in the, in the old days, that was just sort of a cultural tradition. I'm going to grab it as soon as I can. Right. But that was fine if you were getting a pension. People lived differently in retirement a generation or more ago. They lived more simply in retirement. They lived on the sources of income they had, Social Security and traditional pensions. Well, those pensions pretty much gone the way of the dodo bird. And people have more expensive lifestyles in retirement. They're often carrying mm-hmm. mortgages into retirement. They have been used to using credit cards to fund their lifestyles. Consequently, their expenses in retirement may be a lot higher than previous generations, and they need more money to fund it. So the longer you can wait, particularly if you are married, to get a bigger Social Security benefit, the easier it's going to be to fund that lifestyle in retirement. I certainly don't think everybody should delay. Anybody who's in poor health probably want to grab it while they can. If you need the money, grab it while you can. If you're married, maybe one of you should delay and maybe the other one should claim early and hedge your bets. Here's the thing. I I had a big conversation with my dad a couple of weeks ago about this. I said, I'm going to wait as long as I can, 67 or whatever. And he raised the point of, well, how long is it going to take you to make up that difference, even though it's a lower amount of money for the four or the five years when you could have been collecting? I mean, that to me seems like suddenly a no-brainer to collect earlier. That is called a break-even analysis. Basically, how long do I have to live to make it worthwhile for me to delay and consequently get more money over my lifetime? And it breaks down like this. If I collect at 62 versus my full retirement age is 66, I'm going to have to live to about 78 to make that worthwhile. But that's a lot less than the average life expectancy, which is about 84 right now. If I have decide to delay till 70, yeah, I have to live to about 83 before it's worthwhile. But the key is for married couples, there's probably three benefits involved. Your retirement benefit, her retirement benefit, and ultimately a survivor benefit. So you're really spreading that break-even point over two lifetimes, not one. And the goal of most married couples is, how do I maximize the survivor benefit? And I do that by having one spouse, preferably the one with the bigger benefit, waiting up until age 70. Because for every year you postpone claiming beyond your full retirement age, up until age 70, you get an extra 8% per year. That could boost your benefits by 32%. And that's only relative because we are living in a 0% interest rate environment. Where else are you going to put money in a no-risk investment and get 8%? No place. Well, another thing to keep in mind on this, when a lot of times people say waiting till 70, that doesn't mean you have to work till 70, right? Correct. You, you, can, you, you can live off your other savings or your IRA or whatever. You just don't collect until 70. 
Right. Americans have to learn that deciding when to stop working and when to collect Social Security benefits are two separate decisions. Yeah. Excellent stuff. You are, as they say in Boston, so smart. <laughs> I'm uh, wicked smart or this. <laughs> you're wicked smart. Yeah. <laughs> you know everything, Mary Beth. I don't, I don't think we could stump you. Bruce, do you have anything else for our, uh, our Social Security uh, guru? Mary Beth, what's your email in case people want to shoot you a quick note? I welcome questions from financial advisors or anybody else uh, to M.B. Franklin. That's my initials and last name, M.B. Franklin at investmentnews.com. And, and Mary Beth, you, you're prolific. You always have ebooks or back in the old days, of course, pre-COVID events that you were going to, anything like that. Is there anything like that going on with you right now? Well, yes, you can get a copy of my ebook of the latest rules for 2020 on how to maximize Social Security retirement benefit. And you can do that through investmentnews.com slash MBF ebook. Awesome. All right. Great. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Okay. Thank thanks you so for, much for your time, Mary Beth. Really appreciate yep. it. Hey, Bruce, you got a good scoop this week about Wells Fargo. What's going on with the giveaways, the dinners, and the tchotchkes over there? Well, Jeff, you know, it's really it's really funny. It's really interesting. Here we are in the middle of this pandemic where most people are like me. I'm just kind of staying hunkered down in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And you're getting out and doing a little, you live more in a suburban area down in North Carolina. You're getting out, you're playing a little golf, you're doing a little fishing, you're seeing the family, but you're still not going, you're not going on vacation or traveling or anything. Right. And you're certainly not having meals with clients or, or sources or anything like that. Right. Like you used to. So in the middle of all this, Wells Fargo tells its brokers just, I think it was at the end of last month, end of August, that if you're going to buy, if you're going to have a Zoom meeting and buy your client pizza or Chinese dinner or have, a, say, a, a meeting with a, a half a dozen clients and buy everybody dinner, that you have to be on the Zoom call with them while they're eating their food. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, hey, just wait. We can't talk about, you know, your retirement plan until the burger <laughs> is off the grill there, buddy. Uh, I like it, man. <laughs> so, and this came on the heels of Merrill Lynch putting out a, a memo, a dictum to its advisors on Tuesday. Again, this is Thursday the 10th. This gets released on Monday the 14th. So it would have been the prior Tuesday. But the dictum said basically third party money managers have new limits on. And third-party money managers and product providers, that's money managers and annuities underwriters, right? Can't pay for gifts, meals, and entertainments for employees. Employees can still go out to dinner with those people as long as they cover their own portion of expenses. And they also made some other minor changes to this rule. I just thought it was just for – this strikes me as big monolithic bank firm nonsense at its highest, right? Right. First first of all, the whole thing about having to eat the food while your clients are on Zoom. That FINRA put out a notice to uh, some guidance about this over the summer, so maybe some firms are point, are saying, "Oh, FINRA is making us do this now." So you guys all have to get in line. 
But I can just imagine people, imagine if you're a broker, you've been doing this for 15, 20, 30 years. You have tens of millions or hundreds of millions of client assets. You've worked your tail off to build up your business. And now they're telling you how to eat your food Uh with people. (laughs) (laughs) And this thing that Merrill Lynch is doing, these guys already, it's to minimize a conflict of interest while Reg BI gets introduced. Right. So all appearances. But these guys, you know, they already do this. The days of the big time mutual fund manager coming in and uh, buying steak dinners for the brokers and taking them all to strip clubs afterwards for lap dances and whiskey sours. That's long. That that hasn't (laughs) happened in decades. You know what I mean? I mean, sure. We hear about it from time to time that these types of practices go on, but that's usually like a solo or one-off practitioner or somebody who has his hand in the till and he's stealing the client's money in order to provide for his own ridiculously prurient lifestyle. So what this does is it gets under, I imagine, and in my conversations with people inside and outside the warehouses, this just gets under people's skins. This just gets under advisor skins. The last thing they need at this point in time is to be told what to do about eating with clients or money managers or the like. So it's just kind of big firm. Yeah. Big firm nonsense. I can say that if anyone wants to send me food, I will gladly eat it with them over a Zoom call, even though I think that's kind of rude to be eating and talking, but I will I will follow Wells Fargo's guidelines and uh, recognize that. I don't eat a lot of flesh, so uh, let's But what if the pizza guy is busy? Maybe it's, you know, it's the NBA playoffs are crying out loud. People are out there delivering wings and stuff, you know, and they got to get you on that call and you can't eat and I can't, you know. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I hear you. On the Merrill Lynch thing, though, I want to ask you this, Bruce. I saw a little bit this week on this. Do you think that this could be a little bit of Merrill Lynch kind of trying to keep its captive sales force within arm's reach so that they don't have so much access to third-party vendors? You think there might be a little bit of that going on? That's interesting. That that might be there that there might be something to that I don't know to say for certain whether or not or yes. But you got to remember Jeff, just maybe 4 to 6 weeks ago, Business Insider ran a great story that we picked up and did a follow-on about kind of curbing the cold calling of their trainee advisors that we were just, that 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 we're going to talk about next with with our guest uh, Liz Skinner in this diversity part of the podcast, you know, they have thousands, they have 3000 trainees. And Merrill said internally that calls by these new advisors were violating compliance rules, right? So Mm -hmm. I got to figure that they're trying to, it seems to me, based on that story and this development this week about gifts from outside money managers, Merrill Lynch is being extremely cautious and being extremely corporate by just trying to get its arms around these types of practices. Yeah. That's what it appears to me to to be. I mean, I see these giveaways as part of sales, and I guess they can get a little bit egregious. I do remember, oh my gosh, this had to be 15 years ago when the Financial Planning Association, they, at their annual conference in Boston, they uh, canceled, they said there were the vendors, the people at the booths couldn't have any of those tchotchkes, those giveaways, those those stress balls and stuffed animals and t-shirts and stuff like that. And, <laughs> I remember you know, that. pens yeah. and it, yes. I mean, it's like, 
I mean, you're you're not really. Well, there's a hundred. Do- I think the the rule the rule of guidance, right, by Finra is it's a hundred dollar gift or a hundred dollar meal, and you're not supposed to. You're supposed to spend that in an appropriate way. If you're an outside vendor to a, to an advisor or to an advisor to a client, but then there's different rules around meals and events as opposed to just gifts and and one offs. So, you know, it's a no-no to pay for big, big time concerts, you know, to pay a thousand bucks, you know, to go see a Broadway show or something like that. That's, you can't do that anymore. The, 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 the advisor has, and the client, they, they have to split things up equally, in other words. And right. they're just getting, they're getting ready for Reg BI, but it seems like Merrill Lynch, which again is the industry leader, is trying to get its arms around this thing. I called more. I tried to get some information out of what Morgan Stanley and UBS were doing here, and I, and and I couldn't get anything out of my sources regarding that. So we don't know what they're doing, but most likely they're doing something. Well, good stuff. I'm sure this is going to continue to uh, develop and spread, and hopefully somebody will call me with a uh, Zoom meal invitation, and I will test the <laughs> waters on that one. I'll let you know. I'll get back and let you know how it works. Okay. I'm, Sounds good. Uh, I'm ready to be anyone's guinea pig when it comes to uh, eating a meal over Zoom. I promise I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I shall give, I shall do my utmost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, and for our final segment, we have another guest this week with Liz Skinner, Special Projects Editor uh, at Investment News. How you doing, Liz? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. We know you do a lot with uh, diversity and inclusion among your many other projects and assignments. And this week we had a big, or we, I think we were a part of a big women in asset management virtual conference. We got you on here to kind of talk a little bit about that and the significance of it. And then we want to fold into the kind of the broader discussion of diversity and inclusion in financial services. Do you mind giving us a little update on the Women in Asset Management Conference? Yeah, great. So the Women in Asset Management Conference, this was the U.S. version because we have some in different parts of the world. This was leading asset managers from around the country getting together, talking about different issues. One of the themes that really Kind of came out of several of the sessions was that was with regards to diversity, and there were several different discussions about why the industry lacks diversity. And you know, we had one guest actually that was part of a fireside chat that I did, and he said the financial services industry really needs to be a lot more intentional about making the industry more diverse. We can't just sit around and wait for it to happen. So he had some suggestions about, you know, elevating diversity, elevating diverse individuals to leadership positions, which is a position that he's in at his firm. This was Shundran Thomas, who's the president of Northern Trust Asset Management. Well, today, Citigroup just announced the new CEO, a woman. Yeah, so that's that's the first. And this is Thursday. The podcast is going to be released on Monday, but that that happened the week before. You guys are listening to this, but that's huge news, right? It's too bad that didn't happen during your conference, Liz. I think <laughs> it would have given a 
a little bit more, uh, I would imagine, right? It would have given a little bit more of a, a boost or something for people to talk about, to peg this on, because I don't mean to put anybody's age out there, but Jeff and I have been doing this for 20 years at Investment News. You've been here for several years. I mean, what is it right now that's different for people and the conversations that you're having publicly and privately with these women and these people at these conferences about diversity, about inclusion? Has anything shifted? So what's not shifting, Bruce, is the numbers. We are not seeing a broad increase in the numbers of women nor ethnically diverse individuals in the industry, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, we've been talking about it for a decade. More, two decades. It goes back for me for two decades. But seeing, you know, a firm like Citigroup elevate a woman to the top job is it that that's really important on different levels. One, it can show that Citigroup has made diversity and having diverse thoughts go into their policies and they're making it a, a priority, which is something that came out in the conference. The the need to be a lot more intentional and not have these efforts just be some type of a human resources effort or a quota that you have to or a window to dressing really, of some sorts. Yeah, you have to. It, it's got to be a business initiative. We need the leaders at the top of these companies to think that by having more diverse employees and leaders, that they're going to end up with better ideas that appeal to more clients, and that's going to be especially important in the future as the nation kind of becomes and moves towards becoming a majority minority in 2045. Yeah, Liz, I, I listened to, as you know, I think three of those sessions from that, that two-day conference, and uh, a lot of things kind of opened my eyes or struck me as, as really interesting. And, and in a couple of sessions, they talked about the distinction between diversity and inclusion, even though they're often spoken of in the same breath, is diversity is the makeup of your company, and inclusion is how individuals feel inside that company which was, to me, really interesting. And, and and they did make references to things like these can't be programs that start in the HR department. They have to start up top and it has to filter down. It can't just be we have a uh, some minorities or a minority or a woman on our board, or we even have a corporate CEO that who is a female. We It needs to be expressed at the top so that it becomes part of the corporate culture. I, I, I was... There was a lot of good stuff that was said in that session, those sessions. Yeah, inclusion really is the key. And that is really a, a company that can create an environment where its employees feel like they can bring their best self and their true self to work every day. They're not hiding. They're not hiding part of themselves. And that's something that in the Investment News Excellence in Diversity and Inclusion Awards, that we have focused on. The awards that we give out this year, we gave out 14 awards to individuals and 15, we had 15 firm finalists as part of our awards. And what we really look for are firms that are trying to create a place through policies, policies that may say a, a certain number of diverse candidates have to be interviewed for every position. And, and different kinds of policies and real efforts. Um, a lot of times it's uh, affinity groups that can really provide extra support in helping a diverse employee feel 
like they're part of the business and feel like they are important to its leaders. Why do you think in your research, Liz, that the financial services industry is considered to be so far behind other industries when it comes to diversity and inclusion? I think for the financial advice sector, the way it has grown up and its focus on individual development, you know, joining this profession, which started out as very much a sales type of position and where you you went and did cold calling and you were going to do better if you already knew, you know, a handful of people who could let you manage their book of business. I think because the industry started like that, it, it kind of takes that is not the common situation for the majority of those who are, you know, ethnic minorities, whether it's black or Hispanic, you know, as well as even for women. Yeah, if I could just interject something, I think when you're, you know, in the old days, when a broker is getting his or her traditional training, you're supposed to call your 100 people in your family and your closest friends first. So if you're from a, I think the perception is the traditional white side of the business would be if you're a, a minority, they're, they're from a, this is a low income group. Or if you're a woman, you don't have friends who are in business. Your friends are women who are housewives or, or the like. I think that's the, that's the male bias perception, <laughs> you know, of the people who are in control of these businesses have, who have been in control of these businesses for so long. I mean, I think that's changing. So, I mean, that's just, that's just kind of how they're going to, a typical sales oriented type firm, like a big insurance company, where a lot of financial advisors get their training is going to hire you based on who you can call and get a sale from immediately. Do you agree or do you not agree? Or, or what do you I think do, though. I think the most optimistic I can be about moving towards more diversity in this business is if you look at the training classes of firms, even like Merrill Lynch, we just wrote about them, you know, I believe it was 50% of their most recent training classes are ethnically diverse or women. So that is a start. Well, they're making a big push. You know, I mean, I could point to a, a few women brokers who got who were with Merrill 20 or 30 years ago, and sexual harassment was a, a routine thing back then, getting pranked in the office when you came into the office in the first thing in the morning, or when you came back to cold call at night or whatever, women were harassed in the business. There was a, there was a huge impediment to getting into the business. And I think what you're saying about Merrill Lynch speaks well for not only that firm, but just the kind of, because they're a leader, it speaks well for, for the industry, for the future, for diversity in the in industry. Sure. And, you know, the, the whole Me Too movement had an impact in financial services as well as, you know, many other sectors in that it, it kind of brought up the public consciousness in terms of that this isn't going to be allowed anymore. And that's not to say women don't still face some harassment when they're in an industry that is nearly all men. But, you know, well, that's it, another problem. At least at the corporate level, to... they're trying to, to tamp it down. But sexual harassment and how it's handled in, a, in an industry like the financial advice industry and non-disclosure agreements that people sign, that's a whole other issue. 
right? That is a <laughs> whole other issue. What we're a talking whole other about, podcast. It's a whole other <laughs> podcast topic and, and, and the like, which we could come back at, at some other time and discuss. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it and you know these are glimmers of hope that we're seeing out there. That the news from I think you said Merrill that they got fifty percent of their new hires are their trainees and women trainees, and it's around three thousand people in their trainee yeah, that's, program that's at any impressive. given time. That's a huge amount of people. Yeah, so that that shows something that's obviously filtering through the company to get that many people because because that's a big part of it too the inclusion part of this is even if all types of people are welcome technically on paper at a company if people don't feel welcome they're not going to apply so it's the chicken and egg thing they have to be able to get applicants into these companies in order to hire them so just think about the 3000 trainees not all those people are going to make it at Merrill Lynch so if half of them make it or a third of them make it that means that the other half or two thirds are going to go out and work at another firm because Merrill Lynch has extremely high standards. Or maybe they don't want to be a career Bank of America, Merrill Lynch person, employee. They want to go out and do something else. They're going to take that training and carry it with them and go somewhere else. And that's what that's one of the things that Merrill Lynch has always done is they've trained the industry in a large way. And they're just training a more diverse population to go out and 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 work in the financial advice industry. That, that's a great point with regards to training. And then another key aspect is these young people being able to see role models. And that's something that our diversity and inclusion awards do is that, you know, we have a, a category, it's called see it, be it role models, because we want people to see that there are diverse individuals who are having successful careers in this industry. You know, in our, in our writings, we write a little bit about the challenges that they have faced, but they have made a successful business for themselves within this industry. And by putting them out there, I feel like it really is another way that we're trying to say, you know, this is an industry that can be welcoming. So now it's up to the firms to to take it the next step. That's really important to have role models, really important. What's up next for you, Liz? What's the next diversity and inclusion project on your schedule? So we have just closed our nomination phase for our women to watch and you can look for 20 new women to watch as well as a new lifetime achievement winner and rising star to come out in our november 23rd issue all right another list that i will not be on so uh, looking forward to that. <laughs> you won't. You're just a you general Bruce. rising star. <laughs> no 40 rising. under 40s. Uh, you know, You're 50 I'm looking over for, 50, you and me, I'm buddy. looking for 100 under 100. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, good stuff, Liz. Thanks for being here. Thanks for helping us out, shedding some light on this important topic for us. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Really appreciate it. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. We actually pulled off two guests for the first time. Impressive. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So we, we want to thank those guests, Mary Beth Franklin and Liz Skinner, for coming on here and helping make making us a little bit smarter and giving uh, our audience a little bit more information about Social Security and diversity and inclusion issues. Two pretty huge issues, I think you could say. We also want to thank our producer, Steve Lamb, our tech guy. We got to love that tech guy. 
And you know, if it's Monday, it's time for another investment news podcast, the investment news podcast. And you can find it all over the place, Jeff. I mean, it's all over the place now. You get it at yeah. investmentnews.com, you get it at Apple, you get it at Spotify, you get it at Google Play, you get it at Stitcher. You can give us a review. We want reviews on Apple, particularly. That always would help us. So if you are on Apple, if you're an Apple user, please, you know, don't feel shy. Just yeah, get give us some feedback. Give us some feedback. We would love to hear from you on Twitter. Jeff Benjamin, he's the professor. His Twitter handle is at BenjiWriter. And me, Bruce Kelly, at BD News Guy. So we will talk to you all in about one week. Thanks very much.